20. Luke chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, you'll be lost at Calvary Chapel. We're not going to put everything on the screen for you. Uh, we're not going to spoon feed you. Um, get a Bible. If you can't write in it, get one you can write in. God will pardon you. Luke chapter 20, verse 1, it said, Now it happened on one of those days. What days are we talking about? This is the final week of Jesus' life. He's already come into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. He's presented himself as the king. He's wept over the city. It's now Tuesday, and Luke tells us he's in the temple preaching and teaching the gospel. And all of a sudden, this august group of religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, together with the elders, possibly the Sanhedrin, the 70 rulers of Israel, confront him. They begin to ask him questions. We're going to look at three questions they ask Jesus here. And, and I'm amazed when I read it because for all of time, we've put people in categories. We still do it today, right? So these are the religious leaders, the scribes, Sadducees, Pharisees, uh, elders, Today, nothing's really changed, right? In America, if I asked you uh, something political, you would say, I live in a red state, blue state, I'm Republican, Democrat, Tea Party, uh, liberal, conservative. If I asked you, you know, what religion you were in, you might give me a denomination, or I'm fundamental, I'm evangelical, I'm Protestant, I'm Catholic, um, in case you don't know what you are. If you're here this morning, you're an evangelical. Now, someone's going to come to me and say, I'm not an evangelical, I just love Jesus. Yeah, but you're an evangelical, okay? <laughs> the roots are Latin and Greek. Iongelion, the good news. Angelos, is where we get angel, a messenger. Uh, Romans tells us, beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We preach the gospel. The beautiful thing is we don't preach it out of constraint. And unlike what we're seeing in Paris, we're not bludgeoning people in the faith. God has done wonders in our lives. He set us free. He's filled us with his spirit. Uh, we're like that man who, who found a pearl of great price in a field and sold everything he had to go buy that field. Jesus has done such wonders in our life. We can't wait to go tell people. And when I got saved, uh, I ran around to every friend, every family member, drove everybody crazy. I'm sure you did. And I just was filled with the love of God and wanted to share my faith. Now, when you share your faith, and you should, with great boldness, you should be stepping over racial divides and socioeconomic boundaries and, and, and letting God use you. It's a scary thing, but let God use you. One of the things going to happen is people will ask you questions. Now, some of you are terrified of that. I get emails like, oh, my gosh, Pastor Bob, I wish you were with me when, when people ask me questions. Well, you don't need me. God wants to use you. But we're terrified because of these questions and the thing we need to understand is people are going to have questions. We had questions, right? You know, I had a boatload of questions when, when someone confronted me. I'd never read the Bible. I didn't know what church life was like. I didn't know the truth. So, so there's going to be these questions. The question is, how do we answer them? Now, in 33 years I've been a Christian, questions have come in three categories for me. One are the people who are sincere. Praise God. I love this, right? Someone's really interested in what we have to say. Oh, man, that's, that's wonderful. I'll, I'll talk to somebody for hours. And again, they're going to have these questions. You know, why is there suffering in this world? What about what happened in Paris? Where's God when all that goes on? Why would prayers go unanswered? The disciples followed Jesus for three years, and they had questions. They saw the man who was born blind. They said, Master, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, they and you and me all have to wait to heaven because Jesus never answered. He said, 
that the glory of God might be revealed, he healed the man, but never answered the question. Nicodemus, the teacher in Israel, John chapter 3, asked Jesus how a man could be born again if he was old. It's a great question. Now, another category of questions, and I know you've received these, are trick questions, right? If people have no interest in spiritual things, they're probably in a crowd, and they've overheard something somewhere along the line, and they find out you're a Christian, and they're like, oh, I got one for you. Is God all-powerful? Yeah. Can God do anything? Yeah. Well, then how come God can't make a rock so big that he can't lift it? What? You're going to poke them in the eye. Are you kidding me? <laughs> then there's argumentative questions. Uh, Larry King, I was going to say he was the king of this. Larry King was the master of this. Larry King, whenever there was something going on in the world, some cultural hot potato argument type of thing, he, he would have this dais of people and always put a prominent Christian pastor there. And you can just set your watch. He was just baiting the guy in, baiting the guy in, so the guy can slip up and say something about abortion or homosexuality. So we look at these questions and we say, well, what do we do with this, right? God wants to use us. How do we balance uh, 1 Peter 3.15? We should always be ready to give a defense for the hope that's in us. And then not casting our pearls before swine. There's things we don't need to discuss with people. The Bible says we don't get in arguments about days or festivals or vain things. You know, how do we stay on track and really try and minister to people? Well, Luke chapter 20 is a clinic. Jesus has asked three questions by the most clever minds in Israel. These are the credentialed people, the leaders of Israel, the scribes, the elders, the Sanhedrin. They're going to ask him three questions. He's going to ask them one. Here's the first. They ask, they say, by what authority are you doing these things? Now, they're not talking about his teaching. They're th talking about him cleansing the temple. In other words, who gave you the right to do what you're doing? And he answered in verse 3, and he said, uh, I'm going to ask you a question. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Now, they reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say it's from heaven, then he's going to say, then, then why don't we believe John? But if we say it's from men, the people are going to stone us, because they knew John was a prophet. So they answered they did not know where it was from. The greatest minds couldn't give an answer. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you why I'm doing these things. And that sounds kind of harsh or stern. So, uh, you're the class today. Sincere question. Trick question, argumentative. Somebody said trick, one among many. Yeah, All right, let's look at it this way. Could have been sincere if we didn't read on, right? I mean, it's a logical question. If somebody came in here and started upending everything, you know, security would get them and say, well, what are you doing? Who gave you this authority? God's a God of order, right? The temple had function in order. You don't want to go into Barnes and Noble and just see books thrown all over and no order. You know, the, we like order. So this could have been a sincere question. I remember when I was a young youth pastor serving in a storefront church trying to take teenagers to a festival in upstate Pennsylvania on the phone with parents who thought I was a cult leader. You know, you know what in the world are you doing with my kid? You know, so that's a great sincere question. However, they were not sincere. By the way, do you know how rude they were? They asked a question while he was teaching a Bible study. You know, I can just picture him sitting around, like, who gave you that authority? Like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? So right in the middle of the Bible study, they asked this question, and what they're trying to do is elevate themselves. 
Because at the end of the chapter, he's going to say they love money, they love pretense, they love long robes, they love long prayers, they love the adulation of the people. And they're trying to elevate themselves. After all, we went to seminary, we're the learned ones, and they're trying to devalue him. You know, there was a time they said, are you teaching us and you were born in sins? You know, they didn't believe in the virgin birth. And they knew he was from Nazareth, they knew the Messiah had to come from Bethlehem. So they're kind of raking him over the coals here. Now, their assumption was dead wrong. They're insincere because they have this little quorum. And they say, well, we can't say it's from heaven because then they'll say, why don't we believe John? And we can't say it was from, you know, it wasn't of heaven because then, you know, the people thought that was one of the greatest revivals they've ever seen. And they're dead wrong in their assumption. You know, had they, had they answered with sincerity and said, you know, we can't deny that was a move of God. All those people going to the Jordan to be baptized. Um, yeah, we think it's from heaven. Uh, think of what Jesus may have done. You know, I, I think with all tenderness and authority, Jesus would say, okay, if it was from heaven, let's, let's, let's listen to some of the things John said. The first time John saw me when I went to be baptized, he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He knew my mission. He said he was a forerunner. He quoted Malachi. He said that he'd have to decrease and I'd have to increase. He knew about my ministry. Maybe Jesus would have even shared some of John's doubts when he said a contingency to the disciples and said, are you the one or will we look for another? And I told John, deaf ears are open and blind eyes. The gospel's preached to the, to the poor. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to doubt in church. Let your doubts drive you towards God, not away from him. And doubt in a community of people that love God. Maybe, like the two on the road to Emmaus we'll get to at the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus may have taken them through every book of the Bible and showed he was the Christ. We have no idea what Jesus would have done, but he knew their insincerity. And their argument was ridiculous. Their argument that, that you had to be credentialed was ridiculous. Now, to be in the priesthood, you had to be of Aaron's line. I get that. Kings were of David's line. There was order. There was function. But they knew enough of the scriptures to know that most of the minor prophets were not religious men. Amos was a sheep breeder from Tekoya. Daniel was a prime minister. Uh, even today, we, we know that Peter was a fisherman. So were most of the early apostles. Matthew was a tax collector. Luke was a doctor. Even Nicodemus, who Jesus said was the teacher in Israel, said, no one can do the things you do unless God be with him. It was very evident to the commoner, it was evident to some Pharisees and great minds that God was on the move and this man spoke with great authority. Now what do you do when people aren't sincere? What do you do when people ask trick questions? Well, you have to gauge their sincerity at some level, right? I mean, it's not, not easy. You have to kind of wade in there. And, um, you know, one of the things I would really caution you is stay away from hot topics in our culture. You, you don't want to talk about abortion. You don't want to talk about homosexuality and same-sex marriage. You know why? Because most of the views we hold is because we became believers. God knows what we believed before. So you're not going to change them from the outside in, Okay. And, and all you're going to do is make them moral. That's not our goal. Our goal is for them to meet God. You know, we don't want to clean them and then bring them to God. We catch them, he cleans them, okay? So, so one of the things I would do is stay away from all that. Um, the other thing I've tried to do, and by the way, I failed at this miserably. Now, you should see what happened with our family 
early holidays when I was a Christian. It was like World War III. But I learned some things, so I'm trying to share with you. The other thing I try to do is get people alone. You know how we talk about beer muscles? People get a couple beers in them, they get real, you know, this big badge of courage. Well, today, people have email and Facebook muscles, right? They're like cowardly in person, but oh my gosh, they're the man behind the curtain if they can get on a keyboard, right? So what I try and do is, is get them out of a crowd. I had a heckler when I worked in the marketplace, and we sat in open desks, no cubicles, no computers back then, believe it or not, at least on your desk, personal computer. So he knew I was a Christian, and he would heckle me, and you know, it was years and years, eight years, and... So everybody knew I was a Christian. They knew I was a pastor because I pastored for several years while working there. And so when I said I was leaving, the whole department had a lunch for me two weeks before I left. And then he asked if, I, if he could take me to lunch on my last day, which I was shocked. And we went out to lunch. He said, you know, I've heckled you, but you're really a great guy. And I really appreciate some of the talks we've had. And believe it or not, he started coming here passed away now, but start coming here. We met at restaurants and had dialogue for quite some time. So getting somebody out of a crowd is probably a good idea. Uh, when I became a Christian on a college campus and walked in on a Friday night to a keg party at a frat house, that was not the place to preach the gospel, okay? Get them alone out of the crowd. Now, they rudely interrupt Jesus' Bible study, so he continues in verse 9, and only he could pull this off on the spot. Uh, preachers like to think they can. They can't. Nobody's this smart. Um, he, he spoke this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vindressers, and sent into a far country for a long time. Now, at vintage time, the harvest, he sent a servant to the vindressers that, that they may give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vindressers beat him and uh, sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another servant. They beat him also and sent him home empty-handed. Verse 12, he sent a third, and they wounded him and cast him out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vindressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and then the inheritance will be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vindressers and give the vineyard to others. And when, he, when they heard it, and these are religious leaders, they said, certainly not. And then he looked at them and said, what then is this that was written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls in the stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind into powder. And the chief prize priests and the scribes, that very hour sought to lay hands on him, for they feared the people, and they knew, listen, he spoke the parable against them. <laughs> so he took them through history, right? Uh, everybody knew that Israel was God's vineyard. Jesus said when he stood over Jerusalem, you stone the prophets, you kill those who sent, were sent to you, you're blind gods, you say peace, peace, and there is no peace. They knew this was about them. And now God had sent the heir, and he was going to die in four days. And they're cut to the heart, and they want to have him arrested. They want to stone him. Now, a few things here, because I find this fascinating. 
Uh, I preached on this 15 years ago, specifically, uh, I think, verse 18. Whoever falls in the stone will be broken, and whoever it falls will grind in the powder. That's Jesus. That's Jesus, the lamb and the lion. That's the same sun that can melt the wax and hardens the clay. That's the ministry of Jesus. What am I talking about? The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. What does that mean? Every human being is building a life, and you're building it on some cornerstone. Some people are building their life on money. Some on family, some on education. Everybody's building a life on something. The psalmist said, they who build labor in vain if it's not built on the right foundation. Jesus said, when the storms come, it'll level you and you'll figure out who built on what. Like Jesus said, you usually find out what people have built their lives on when trouble comes. That's what they fall back on. Take somebody's career away from them, they don't know what to do. Take their money away, they don't know what to do. They build a whole life on everything but God. Fifteen years ago, when I preached on this, I said that verse, whoever falls on the stone will be broken, whoever falls on them will be grinding the powder. I said, we should take Philippians out of all our Christian bookstores. I can do all things that Christ who strengthens me. By the way, that has nothing to do with hitting home runs or dunking basketballs. And we should replace it with this verse. This should be on keychains, bumper stickers, etc. Why? Because this is the ministry of Christ. If you fall on this stone, you'll be broken. And that's a very good thing. Broken of your pride. Broken of your ego. Broken of your dependence upon yourself. So that you can freely live. But one day, this stone, if it's rejected, will grind people to powder. It's the duality of Jesus' ministry. And that ends question number one. So now they take another approach. Verse 20. They watched him and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize him on his words. These aren't CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. This is the religious establishment. See where religion goes? Religion really does poison everything. Thank God Christianity is not a religion. And of course, they wanted to deliver him to the Romans. Verse 21, they changed their tactic. They used a little flattery. They say, uh, teacher, we know that what you, you say and teach rightly and do not show personal favoritism, but teach the true way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he, but he perceived their craftiness. Remember Satan was crafty in the garden? And said, why do you test me? By the way, there's your secret answer to when I ask you what kind of question it is. Show me a denarius whose image is on it. And they said, Caesar. He said, therefore, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. So, sincere question, trick question, argumentative. Class? Yeah, it's a trick question, right? Has no way, it has no right answer. If he says, pay your taxes to Rome... Uh, the Sadducees will be happy, but the Pharisees will be mad. If he says, don't pay your taxes, the Pharisees will be upset. The Sadducees will be glad. I mean, there's no right answer. If he says, don't pay your taxes, he's an insurrectionist. So again, only Jesus could pull this off. He says, give me a coin. Whose icon is this? What image? And by the way, the Jews hated this. Because the second commandment said you couldn't have any image 
and right on these coins were Roman emperors. So it was Tiberius. Jesus knew it was Tiberius. The back of the coin was Pontifex Maximus, the supreme pontinate or ruler, the curios, the lord of the realm or of all the earth, literally. And Jesus said, well, that's easy. If that's all Caesar wants is your money, give it to him. Now, a brief aside, I can't believe I got to say this. If Jesus said they should pay taxes to Rome, then you should pay U.S. taxes. Okay, it's nothing to do with my message. I can't believe I have to say it, but I'll say it just in case, okay? And then he said, render to God the things that are God. Now, here's what was inferred but never said. He said to them, now whose image is upon you? And who is the Pontifus Maximus of your life? And of course, the answer was Genesis 1.26. We were made in the very image and likeness of God. He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and we are made in his image. And then Jesus said, okay, then render to God what he's asked of you. And you know what God asked of us? It's very easy. Two things. To love him with all our heart, soul, and mind. Sometimes that's money, sometimes that's service, sometimes that's singing, sometimes it's dancing, sometimes it's loving people. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. They bear his likeness. Very interesting question to ponder. Whenever we look at society, when human believe, human beings have valued every human being and believe we're all made in the image of God, society's always moved ahead. But when human beings decide to say this group of people is less than this group of people, it's led to things like we're seeing in Paris this weekend. It's led to atrocity and the loss of human life. As the church and Christians, we need to always make sure that we are on the side that upholds human dignity and value. Because that's what God asks of us. Now what do we do with trick questions? Well, it's tough. Usually when someone asks a trick question, it's just a veneer. It's just like they don't know what to do. And again, you've got to figure it out. Let me tell you what I started to do. I start moving people to what I call the grander truth. Okay, ask me that dumb question about the rock. Let's get beyond that. But let's get to a grander truth. I'll give you an illustration. I was, I was flying to Florida one time sitting next to a woman who's like the professor of feminism at a major university. And 20 minutes into the conversation, she said, what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I pastor church. She said, oh my gosh, I didn't think people like you could hold a conversation this long without being condescending. And I said, well, watch what I did. I took her to the grand truth. I said, you know, you know, you're a professor, so you must know this, but do you know Jesus was the greatest liberator of women that's ever lived? She goes, no, really? Why? I said, well, in Eastern culture surrounding him, I said, look at the Middle East today. Uh, women can't, you know, they walk behind men, they eat second, they, they put garbs over themselves. I said, you might not know this. Jesus had 12 disciples, but Luke tells us prominent women were in his entourage. Women saw the resurrection first which is strange because their testimony was invalid. Uh, Lydia brought the gospel to Europe. And the second thing I try and do is, is try and open a Bible or a book I'm reading. 
Instead of just telling them the story, I'll say, look, read, read this. Like Jesus sat with a woman at a well who had five husbands. You'll be amazed how much they start to engage. And by the way, you might be the only gospel they ever hear. Uh, again, I warned you, get away from hot topics. Uh, it doesn't work, especially with trick questions, argumentative questions. Two questions, two strikes. Verse 27 comes question number three. Now, the Sadducees come. They're, they're a slice of these categories. And it says here, they deny the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. And they came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Very clever. Let's, let's go to the Bible. Let's go to Deuteronomy, the Leverite and Average. Now, they don't care about this. They're materialists. They think when you die, you die. So they're bringing this up because they think it's silly, irrational, and they're going to exaggerate it, right? By the way, it was a wonderful thing. In a, in a society with no entitlements, th this would help somebody survive. They take it to the nth degree. She married this guy. He died. This guy. He died. Uh, I don't know why anybody would marry the woman after all these men. But the question is in verse 33. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. Now, what kind of question is this? Yeah, it's probably trick or argumentative, right? Probably more trick. Now, blows me away. Jesus actually answers it. Thank God he does, because we get some really good information here. He answered in verse 34 and said, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry or nor given in marriage, nor do they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now notice a few things here. Jesus talked about this age and that age. And when he talked about it, it's almost like he had been there, and, and he had. Did you ever read in the scripture where it said he taught with great authority, unlike the scribes and Pharisees? He taught with great authority because he embodied it. Uh, today we have a lot of young preachers that want to be relevant. And to them, relevant means like wear $150 jeans, $300 shoes, uh, just be relevant to the culture. I love what somebody said one time, and I forget where the quote came from. Relevance is the distance between what you preach and what you live, not what you wear or where you meet. And the distance with Jesus was razor thin. And Jesus says there's this age and that age. In this age, men are born, they die, Ecclesiastes 3, we go through the seasons of life. He said, but there are those who are worthy of the next life. It's not a guarantee. Worthy doesn't mean you were good enough. Worthy means you trusted God for your salvation. He said we're going to be like the angels. doesn't say we're going to be angels. Now, the study of angels is interesting. We're going to be like angels for two reasons. One, we'll be fixed in number. There'll be no procreation. And there'll be no marriage. Now this idea of no marriage, some of you are like, yes, I can't wait. 
Others are like, darn, I really like being married. That's a drag. I'll talk about that in a few seconds. This present age, you're born, you die, you get married. The age to come, we're going to be like the angels. The angels sinned, right? A third of them fell away. You can read about that in Jude. Uh, the angels, actually, there's a verse that says, you know, I'm paraphrasing, they scratch their head looking at us, the heirs of salvation. You know what they're scratching their head about? They wonder why God deals with us. What in the world is God putting up with us for all these years? Because we're made in the image and likeness of God. That's what drove Satan insane. He was the highest of the angels, but he wasn't made like us in the image of God. And so he tried to usurp God's authority and the worship of God. We don't know much about the afterlife or heaven. We see through a glass dimly. The Bible says it hasn't entered the mind of man. It hasn't been seen nor heard. That's why nobody can write books about going to heaven and coming back. The things that God has prepared for those he loves, it's been revealed by his spirit. The greatest descriptor you've ever heard about the afterlife is like excrement compared to what it really will be like. But Jesus gives us a glimpse. And we know from the rest of scripture, no pain, no tears, new bodies. Some of you are looking forward to that. I don't know if you can change bodies. Maybe you can. Victor Hugo, who's given us one of the greatest portraits of grace in his book, Les Miserables, and it's been put to movies and musicals. It's just a an amazing story, said this before he died. He said, I feel within me that future life. I'm like a forest that has been razzed. The new shoots are stronger and brighter. I shall certainly rise toward the heavens the nearer my approach to the end. The plainer is the sound of immortal symphonies of which are inviting me. For half a century I have been translating my thoughts into prose and verse, history, drama, philosophy, romance, tradition, satire, Ode and song, all of these I have tried, but I feel I haven't given utterance to the thousandth part of what lies within me. When I go to the grave, I can say, as others have said, my work is done. I just read about Einstein. He died in his 70s. And he had a disease which would need treatment. It was about 50-50 if he would live or die. He denied the treatment. You know what he said? I, my work is done. He said, I've made my contribution. And he died the next day. Jefferson, you may not know this, willed himself. He was gravely ill, willed himself to die on the 4th of July, and he did. But I cannot say, Victor Hugo said, my life is done. My work will recommence that next morning. The tomb is not a blind alley. It is a thoroughfare. And it closes upon the twilight, but opens upon the dawn. Don't you wish you could express yourself like that? I hate guys like this. I mean, give me a break. Think of what he just said. The grave is a thoroughfare. There's a thousand things I want to do. Ravi Zacharias said, you know, if he had another life to live, he'd be a chef. It really grates me when Christians say, I don't want to die because heaven will be boring. I don't like boring. You want to know what's boring? And this is coming from maybe, you know, the most rabid sports fan in the church. I could argue all day with you statistics and teams and history. You know what's boring? NFL football. 
Now, I know you waited all week, right? Scads of commercials, scads of penalties. Half the league doesn't have a quarterback that should be in the NFL. The games, half of them are atrocious. And it's all we got, and it's the best we got. That's boring. Thank God they invented the DVR. Can you imagine Victor Hugo using 100% of his brain? I mean, can you imagine, like, okay, I don't know what to do today. Maybe I'll go look at a dark hole. Or maybe I'll look at some foreign galaxy. Maybe I'll sit around with Moses today. You know, I mean, you got to be kidding me. You know, one of the hardest things I do is stand at this stage at the end of the service. People I know and love come up to me with tremendous illness and arthritis and sickness. And they want to know why God doesn't heal or, or will he heal. And I think, I don't know either, but I know this. There's an age to come. And it's for all time. And it's going to be amazing. And we're only passing through and we're only pilgrims. And if you've built on that cornerstone, if you've been broken, you know that. And I know it's all, I, I know this is all we know. But you kind of like this, right? And you had no saying it before you got here. So you're going to like that too. It's going to be amazing. And Jesus talked about it a lot. And C.S. Lewis said, we are far too easily pleased. And there is a new world coming. Strike three. Three questions, three strikes. Jesus said, no more questions. Game over. Now I ask the questions. And Jesus' question is in verse 41. And he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? So the Jews believe, they still believe it today in Israel, that the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christos, the, the one that's coming, is of the lineage of David. Why? Because that's the lineage of kings. So they believe their Messiah is coming. Now, we believe he's already come and he's returning. They believe he's coming for the first time, which sets up this incredible thing about an antichrist, someone that will bring peace to Israel. They wanted to make Jesus king in John 6 because they thought he was the Messiah. So Jesus has a question. How can they say that the Christ is David's son when Psalm 110 says this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How then is he his son? Now Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. It's quoted 27 times in the New Testament. There's only a few messianic psalms. Write these down. Psalm 2, Psalm 22, Psalm 45, Psalm 72. I feel like that guy on the radio calling out school closing. Psalm 110. <laughs> Psalm 2, Psalm 22, Psalm 45, Psalm 72, Psalm 110. Go back and read those. Edward Reynolds, one of the great expositors of the 15th century, said this psalm is one of the fullest and most compendious prophecies of the person and also of Jesus Christ in the entire Old Testament. Supersedes everything in the Old Testament. Spurgeon, one of the most famous preachers in the 19th century, said the whole psalm is the subject of Christ. And so the question is, not is a Messiah coming, Israel believed that. The question is, how could David call him Lord? Now there's a few things you need to know because this isn't in Hebrew. So let me tell you how Psalm 110 would have written it. 
it would have said, Jehovah said to my Adonai. So Jehovah is Y-H-V-H. In the Hebrew, there's no vowels. It's the unspeakable name of God. But one time we were in Israel and Daniel, who's been my tour guide, Jewish tour guide for 20 years, forgot his Bible in the bus and he borrowed mine. And when he started to read, he got to the place in my Bible where it said G-O-D and he stopped. He can't read it. He can't say it. And in their Bible, it says G-D, the unspeakable name of God. Now, we've taken the vowels from Adonai, which means Lord or Sir, and we put them in Y-H-V-H where you get the word Jehovah. But the Lord, Jehovah, the Y-H-V-H, the supreme God, said to my Adonai. So how can David call him his son? In other words, for David to call him Lord, he has to be superior to David. He has to be more than a king. And of course, where this is going is it's saying he is God. Now, if you were to go to Psalm 110, this is what verse 4 would say. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest, speaking to the Messiah, who was a king. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is strange. And David, David writing this under inspiration of the Holy Spirit must have been confused because kings and priests were two separate offices. It was checks and balances. But now we have a king who's a priest. And a thousand years after Abraham meets this man with no mother and father and pays tithes to him, this prince of Salem, Melchizedek, David writes about him. Here's what really gets interesting. A thousand years after Psalm 110, the writer of the Hebrews writes about Melchizedek eight times. I'm not going to read it all to you. Chapter 6, 7, and 8 says, Thus God, desiring to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, that's you and me, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled to refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor to the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. It quotes Psalm 110. It goes on to talk about Melchizedek. And what it's saying is, is that the Aaronic priesthood of men had an end. It was futile that it only could bring people so far. Therefore, Jesus had to be after not an earthly priesthood, but a heavenly, after the order of Melchizedek. And after taking them all through this in the book of Hebrews, it says, so we have the surety of a better covenant, but he, speaking of Jesus, because he continues forever, has this unchangeable priesthood, therefore, and you always want to get to the therefore to find out why it's therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Every priest who's ever lived has died. Jesus in four days will get up out of the grave and be the prototype or the first fruits of all those who would rise from the dead. And I marvel how Jesus, though they're not sincere, lays this all out for them. Why? Because God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, 
but all come to the knowledge of the truth. To, to your dying day, how cynical you are and how hard-hearted you are, God will try and break through. God brought ten plagues upon Egypt to soften Pharaoh's heart, and all it did was harden it. But that's not our choice. We don't sit around and wonder who's soft and who's hard. We just preach the gospel. We preach the good news. We tell people about the love of God, that every hair on their head is numbered, that God has a plan for their life, that they're not good enough. There's a wonderful Savior who wants to change them from the inside out and fill them with his spirit. The tragedy is how this ends in verse 45. It says, then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware, watch out, be on guard of the scribes and really all religious people because this is what it's all about. They desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the best place at feasts. They devour a widow's houses and for a pretense make long prayers. And they'll say, receive the greater condemnation. Jesus said false religion, dead religion can all be summed up like this. People go in it and they may have gone in it for all the right reasons and maybe they wanted to serve people and maybe they had the right heart. But at the end, it's a grinder. And at the end, it's all about adulation. It's all about you. It's all about your position, your credentials, uh, the robes you wear. We've all seen it. We've been there, done that, and got the t-shirt, Right? The one thing religion has never cared about is people who were made in the image and likeness of God. They just never got it. And you might look here and say, well, Pastor Bob, it's strange you're talking like this because you're a part of organized religion. You're right. This is organized, and that's a beautiful thing. Hopefully, wherever you go today, the Acme, Wegmans, Barnes & Noble, that'll all be organized too. Organization's a wonderful thing. By the way, the NFL's organized. Everybody know that? Starts at 1 o'clock today. There'll be referees there, et cetera, et cetera. There's nothing wrong with organization. The temple was organized. But who are the people in the organization? Why are they there? Are they lovers of money? Are they lovers of pleasure? Or do they really love God and want to make a difference? Look. We're going to fail you here. Leadership is disappointing people at a rate they can stand, okay? We're going to fail you. We're, we're human beings, but we're here to help you grow. We've laid our life down, all our volunteers, everybody who serves, to say, who can you be in Jesus Christ? Because God does have a wonderful plan for our lives, and we matter as human beings. Every life matters. So, Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you that every person who died in Paris, you care about. Every hair on their head was numbered. Lord, in this tragedy, would you raise up the church in France to be the church? Lord, would you raise up believers who would pray with people, pray for people, minister to families? Lord, we, we know Satan meant this for bad, but you can use it for good, Lord, that that this could birth revival in a decadent city like Paris where they have a vestige of Christianity, Lord, but, but not, not much substance. And God, we see evil before our eyes today, but we know that you're greater than all these things. You said the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against us. Lord, help us to be kind to people, reason with them, 
Help us to share and be benevolent. And blessed are these feet that bring good news. Lord, open our eyes to some situation this week where we can give a reason for the hope that's within us with fear and trembling. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. We'll sing this final song.